<clears throat> this morning we'll deal with the first one. Um, but let me give you a bit of context since we were away for Christmas. Uh, we've had 10 chapters that have gone before this. And the Apostle expects us, as we're reading it, kind of expects us to uh, read any letter. You know, if I got a letter from Tammy, I don't read page one on, on the first Monday of the month and then wait a couple weeks and read page two. Uh, you read all the way through to the end. And such is the context here. Uh, those first 10 chapters, the Apostle has presented over and over and over and over again, really in every chapter, the wonderful gospel of grace that God, of his own doing, of his own choice, of his own love, before we were even created, he foreknew a people. And he predestined those people to be his and to cleanse them and to make them his holy people, his holy family. Um, and that there was no other way of salvation. So those first few chapters, he lists all various forms that human beings seek to make themselves right before God. And really, he takes each one to its logical conclusion. He says, no, this is not going to work. Moralism is not going to work. Agnosticism is not going to work. Atheism is not going to work. These are all inconsistent for what you know inside you and how you're put together. The only answer, the hope for humanity, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he makes it abundantly clear and simple. Um, and then now he is dealing with those who would raise up their hand and say, well, I, I can't accept this because. And so that's what he's been doing in chapter 9 and 10 and now 11. And his greatest detractors are no different than the greatest detractors of the gospel today. The greatest detractors are those who find themselves righteous. And it's the last thing that it, it seems has to be wrestled from our hearts before we entrust our lives to Christ. It's our own righteousness. It, it's coming to the fact that, that what I have done and what I have accomplished and how I compare myself to other dads or other people or other workers, or how it, that is not how God's system works. And it will not be enough. And so what we find here and what we find today and what we found in those days um, is really the greatest persecution often comes from religious people. And the Jews, especially in Paul's day, uh, they're being told that, that what you have held on to it is not going to save you. Uh, and in fact, that's why in the, the epistle to the Romans, every chapter has Old Testament references saying, you misunderstood this, you didn't hear this, this didn't make sense to you. It's here, it's here, it's here, it's here. Our God dealt with Abraham this way, with David this way, with Solomon this way, with his prophets this way. God, our God has always dealt with human beings through his gracious acts of mercy, not through your good works. And, um, and so chapter 11 is furthering that. And so the question that starts uh, in chapter 11 is, is, a, is a question of response, really, against this teaching. Uh, again, I want to just reiterate, he has, he has presented this gospel. Uh, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, and to all those who God calls to himself by the Holy Spirit, and he makes them his own. Again, he has done this by going through all the Old Testament texts, uh, and, and it's wonderful, and I've said this before, that he is the one delivering this message because it's him. And he is the one. This is what he believed. This is what he rested on. And for Paul, the gospel meant so much to him because he had this overwhelming sense that he didn't deserve any of it. 
In fact, he had this overwhelming sense that if he was left on his own, if Jesus did not interrupt his path, that he would have done more atrocities than maybe anyone before him. Right, I love the way Luther explains it. Luther says, Paul the Apostle, uh, what did he say? Paul the Apostle, quotes, he who had with all his strength had contended with God has now been rescued by grace. And so when he speaks, especially here to the Jewish people, but also to us, he speaks to those who feel by their own works, by their own actions, they are justified before God. In chapter 10, he lays the gospel out again and says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, again, here he is, he's going to the prophet Joel, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Right? He's saying, Joel was saying in him, he's speaking of Jesus in the Old Testament. Verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's speaking to them concerning Jesus. So we have two questions. We'll tackle the first one this morning. Uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And this, this is part of Paul's teaching method. He, it's, a, it's a question and answer. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> so he's quoting from really at least four different passages in the Old Testament in his answer. But the, the main question then is, is verse 1. Has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his people? people and, and that was the that was kind of the mindset of many of the Jewish detractors Paul if you're saying that the Gentiles can come to a, the same relationship that we have through faith not even having to be circumcised not having to follow all our dietary restrictions and all our Sabbath laws but but through just belief and you're saying that we who don't put our faith in Jesus are lost well you're telling us God's rejected his people it's a, it's a viable question. Um, has God rejected his people? Title of the sermon, A Remnant Chosen 
by grace. God's people are called often through Scripture a remnant. They're always called people that are chosen. Uh, human beings have trouble with that, uh, and so people try to get around all of that. Um, but it's been all throughout this letter to the Romans that, that God has a great sovereign purpose for humanity, and his purposes will not be thwarted. Um, but has he rejected his people? You ever felt rejected by God? You ever felt alone? It's an amazing text when he goes back to 1 Kings 19. You may not know that story. That story, uh, uh, it, it's Elijah, it's Ahab, and Jezebel. Just about everybody has heard of Jezebel. <laughs> right? This evil queen, just awful queen. Uh, and, and she, you know, she, her husband did whatever she asked. You know, he killed, he killed people to take their vegetable gardens. He did awful things, right? Awful things to the priests and the people of God. And Elijah's in one of those moments where it's like, it's it, I'm the last one. It's just me. Hey, nobody left. And what's amazing, this text comes after two amazing miracles. One was, uh, was rain. There'd been a terrible, terrible drought. And, um, and then God tells uh, Elijah, hey, I, I'm going to send rain. Tell King Ahab that I'm going to send rain. It's just another beautiful picture of God's common grace. The people that had rebelled, they had torn down every aspect of God uh, from the Old Testament worship. They desecrated his beautiful temples, filthy things. I know sometimes we think the world's bad as it can be. No, it was much worse in those days. Awful things happening to children and women, especially, in the worship in those temples. Right? All this is going on, and God still sends rain. But he says, Elijah, I want you to tell Ahab so that he knows I'm sending the rain. Not because they deserve it, but because my people need their hearts turned back to me. So then this rain comes. I mean, he looks at the sky, there's nothing, and then he sees this little cloud. And he goes to Ahab and he says, hey, get ready. You're going to have just rain in abundance. Now, that's not enough. He's still scared for his life. Jezebel still wants to keep the idol worship that's going on. And, and so he says, I, I tell you what, we're going to go up to this, mount, uh, this mountain and... and all you prophets of Baal, create an altar, put a sacrifice, and call on your God to bring fire down. And I'll do the same. And if fire comes down, then Baal is God. If fire comes down, then God is God. And so for a whole day, it goes on, and the prophets of Baal have this, and they cry out, they cut themselves. They do all acts of worship to wake Baal up. All the time, Elijah's being a real jerk. It's pretty awesome. He's making fun of him. He's, uh, he says things like, uh, maybe he's asleep. Oh, maybe he's relieving himself. Cry louder. And then he goes to the, the, the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down, and he kind of rebuilds it, puts a sacrifice on it, and he says, go get water. He makes a trough, and he puts water in there and he pours water all over it and he says let it be known to you today it is the Lord who is God fire comes from heaven consumes it even consumes the stones now you think after that right you think the people observing the prophets observing after seeing such a great and glorious miracle 
that there would be this huge revival. No. I'm telling you why. People do not like to give up their self-righteousness. They don't want to be ever told they're wrong. I'm like that. I mentioned that last week. Just, just on the drive home, I want to be right about my way home more than Tammy is to write about her way home. Right? What is that about us? I'll tell you what it is about us. We were made to be right. We weren't made as a people just to be forgiven. We were made of people to be right, to be righteous. Right? And, and the good news of the gospel is not just that you're forgiven. The good news of the gospel is you will be made right. You'll be declared right in His sight through faith, but, but you will be made right. And so Elijah, he... The people overpower and they kill the priests. But then Jezebel says, I'm going to kill them. And so what we have in this text is his self-pity party in a cave. Like, oh boy, you've abandoned me. I'm the only one left. And God says, no, no, Elijah. There's always a remnant. Now that, that term for me has been precious throughout my life. Moments where I feel lonely especially hard when I was in high school. I felt in high school so often, I'm the only one that cares about you, God. All my basketball team has turned their hearts away. It's it's me. I'm the only one. And in self-pity sometimes would go towards the Lord with that same thought. But here's the beautiful news of our covenant making and keeping God. He will never forsake his own he will never ever forsake his own and even the story of Elijah proves it he has compassion on his people whom he has chosen the sermon in the sentence this morning is since God will never reject his people the Christian is never ever alone in this life and in the one to come. And there are really two senses of this never being alone. God is always with his people. Right? We, we looked at Jonah over Advent. Right? He could not hide from God in the belly of a fish. He makes his bed, it says, down in Sheol he is there. If I hide myself in the heights of the cliffs, behold, you are there. The Christian is never away from God's presence. But also the Christian is always part of God's family. There is always a family, a remnant, that we might not live alone. Um, in this text, too, the, the question, has God rejected his people? Uh, part of that is, is a throwback to uh, the people after Saul was uh, anointed as king. And Samuel gives them a warning. Samuel says, you know, you have rejected the Lord as your king, and you said, I want an earthly king. And the words are, we want an earthly king like all the nations around us. And then the people are worried. Oh, no, we've made a huge error. We've sinned against the Lord. And Samuel says, yes, you have. But you're my people, God says. And I will not forsake you. So I want to look at the question really quick. And then we've got four answers to that question this morning. First, the question. The the question, has God rejected his people, betrays uh, a, a lack of understanding of the nature of God and salvation of faith, the gospel, his promises, and prophecy. Has God rejected? Even the term rejected, when you think about rejected, what does that conjure up, right? For me, it conjures up third grade, asking Robin Noble to be my girlfriend. Sliding a note on her desk. I like you. Do you like me? Check the box. Oh, rejected. 
right? I mean, it, 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 it kind of conveys that. There are, the, there are like a people that are seeking God. We're, oh, we're crying out for you, O oh God, and you keep turning your back on us. That's not our God. He will not reject his people. That's not at all what the doctrines of God's providence and his sovereignty teach. You know, that there's a, there's a people and they long to be his, but because they weren't chosen, they'll never be his. No. Rejected carries that sense that a person is seeking and shunned, uh, people seeking God, and he is deciding he doesn't want to be found. When the opposite really is true, God sent his son to seek and to save the lost. God calls out from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, and all of creation cries out, there is a God out there who loves beauty who is relational and personal. And he cries out night and day, come and be reconciled to me. Sometimes we may feel rejected when we have hardship or discipline. But for the Christian who rightly understands the covenantal nature of God, hardship and discipline are often his ways of saying, I'm going to work on you. I've got greater plans. I intend to relieve you of this thing that you thought you, could live, you couldn't live without. It's times maybe when God is taking special interest. So God won't reject his people. But the second part of this question is his people. If you'll notice the way Paul answers it, he says God will not reject his people, and then he adds two words, whom he foreknew. Right? And it's what we've seen in chapter 9 and chapter 10 already that... that uh, Israel is saying God's people are those that are ethnically born Jewish. Those that can trace their bloodline some way or another back to Abraham. Those are his people. And so when they ask that question, has God rejected his people? Paul answers, no, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Right? Whom he foreknew. Not just he knew something about them. He looked down in history and he can, he can tell the tea leaves of what these people are going to be like. But no, I, I love them before they even knew themselves. And so he says, no, his, his people. And, and so that's been an ongoing theme through 9, 10, 11. All of Israel is not Israel. Right? There, is a, there is an Israel of God, as it says in the scriptures. Right? Israel as a country was to stand as a beacon of God and his government and his structure and his family and his law. Right? It was to set all these things up. But even in that time, there were those who didn't belong to God. So, yeah, not, not understanding this idea of rejection um, or what it means to be God's people. Uh, so this question, has God rejected his people? He answers emphatically, by no means, or God forbid. Um, it's one of those emphatic denials that we see in the Greek language. Uh, God forbid, by no means, absolutely not. Does your gospel, Paul, does it void the promises God made to his people? Oh, absolutely not. By no means. Maybe the question we should ask then, who are his people? Or even more personal, am I his? And so he answers that question. He says, by no means, and then he gives really four proofs. The first is just there in verse 1. First is a personal proof. He basically says, hey, look at me, right? I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In my life actions, I was a blasphemer, and I was an enemy of the church. I was the chief of sinners, and I was shown grace. I was of the tribe of Benjamin in the sense that I'm an ethnic Israelite. I, if, if you're saying that this means every ethnic Israelite is cut off, then you're wrong. 
Look at me. No, God hasn't forsaken his people. I'm Jewish and he pursued me who deserved him least of all people. He looks at himself. Secondly, then he gives this theological answer. We've already talked about it a little bit. It's all through this text. Um, God hasn't given, those, forgiven, uh, given up on those people that he foreknew. Um, and he would have expected us to have read and remembered Romans 8, 29 and 30, those who he foreknew. These are his people he foreknew. He predestined. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. He, he, he counts them righteous. And those he justified, he also glorified. Of course God would not reject his own people. It goes against all that the scriptures teach and have professed about God and his covenant faithfulness. He says in verses 5 and 6, so too at the present time. There is a remnant chosen by grace. Theologically, his answer is no, by no means. Personally, his answer is no, by no means. And then biblically, verses 2 to 10, look at the scriptures. He goes, there's a remnant. There always has been. Um, our, our text calls the apostle to mind. We've already talked about uh, Elijah and King Ahab and Queen Jezebel uh, in, in 1 Samuel. Um, the Lord's not going to forsake his people even when they chose a king. Psalm 94, the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. The scriptures are replete with this. Fourthly, contemporary. He says, now look at this current situation, this current scene. David and Isaiah's prophecies in Psalm 69, the hardening of the hearts of those who reject Christ, the blinding of their eyes as a result of their hard hearts, the further downward spiral into darkness. We see it very, very clearly in all of human history. Uh, a betrayal of, of the things that are basically, basically revealed by our God, leading to further and further distance. But he says, what then? So now there is a remnant. And Paul is putting himself in that, saying, I'm a remnant. He is saving even now. Has God rejected his people? Oh, by no means. God has never rejected, nor will he ever abandon his people. I want to spend some time just in closing looking at the phrase here. Uh, he keeps for himself. Isn't that beautiful? He will not abandon his people. He keeps them for himself. If you've had a child, if you've had a, a good parent, you have some sense of what this means. Right? You, you, have a, you have a child, and that child just brings into your life all sorts of hardship. Right? I mean, they're sweet. They're beautiful pictures. They're wonderful times. We take pictures of all the good things. We don't normally put dirty diapers and blow-ups and vomiting and, and uh, rebellious kids and breaking dad's tools and you know, wrecking his car. We don't usually put those things on Facebook. Right? The defiant acts, lying, stealing, taking from us. We don't put all those things on there, but we endure them because we love them. And so the very basic nature, the Apostle Paul is saying, this God who foreknows his people, he will keep us for himself. 
And now uh, it's so beautiful in its depth. Our God loves beautiful things. He creates beauty. He creates in His image bearers, human beings, a desire for beauty. And He says, I'm keeping you for myself. One of the funny conversations I had with Luke uh, about the time girls started taking interest in him, he was not ready at all to receive that interest. Uh, and he will tell you this. We have great Luke and dad stories and arguments and sayings. He says, one of the greatest ones I ever did was when I looked at him one day after he'd broken some family rules because some girls didn't invite him someplace and he wasn't allowed to go and he had gone and I found him. I looked at him and I said, well, son, I guess you let the girls win. Oh, he's like, Dad. Oh, I went up to my room. I'm like, he's right. <laughs> he's right. I got pulled into something I don't want to be a part of. But you know what? He belonged to me. I was his dad, and for a season, I had this role to care for him, but I was not a perfect dad. No. I acted out of ignorance at times, fear, selfishness, right? But our God says, when he calls you to be his, that he delights in that. And I love the way this draws us to the table. What does it say? It, it quotes uh, David, right? And, and, and their, their table, what's the, what does it say in here? That something about their table is, um, their table's become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. But it's also David that writes in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. They lay out a table that is a snare. And for the Jews in Paul's day, the snare was very, very enticing. The snare was, you obey these rules, you follow these laws, you dress this way, then you have earned the favor of God. And it was a snare. It caused them to judge other people and it caused them to miss the grace of Christ and their understanding of their own sinful hearts and their need of a Savior. How great is our gospel? God prepares a table. And think about that table. He says, it's in the presence of my enemies. God is saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This one belongs to me. And goodness and mercy follow him. The walk with God is followed by God's goodness and mercy and dwelling. Those who turn to Jesus are then numbered with the 7,000. And so the questions for us today, number one, do I understand the God-human relationship paradigm? To understand how it works. Because that you, you have to get that right. Our God deals graciously with the people and he causes us to humble ourselves before him. Um, the, the questions of membership outline, uh, how do I see myself, how do I see God, and what do I do with it? Do I put my faith and trust in him? Um, have I assumed things, maybe in this God-human relation, that with 
are results of faulty reasoning or possibly scriptures taken out of context, little snippets here and there. You know, I just it drives me nuts when I see that. And we see it all over. Christians holding on to a little piece of a verse. And even if they just read the whole verse, they would know the meaning they're taking is not the meaning intended. If they'd read the chapter, that would be, you know, things would be clear. Um, secondly, am I one of his people? If I'm one of his people, I should be marked as a person who knows that I am saved all of grace from first to last. I, I stand before God in humility and I live in humility before God and before others. If so, do I believe that I belong to him? Not in a sense I chose him. Now, yes, you do. You make a rational choice. But the scriptures unfolding say you do that because he has sent his spirit to call you to himself. Do I see my relationship with God as one out of necessity or transactional? Or have I surrendered myself fully to his leading? If so, am I willing to take up my cross and follow him? Am I willing to deny myself, take up his cross and follow him? God will never reject his people. The Christian is never alone in this life and in the one to come. As we move towards communion, it signifies and impresses upon us the reality of this promise. When we take and eat the bread, it is, it's just bread, it's gluten-free crackers. <laughs> when we take and eat the bread, though, spiritually, we are united with Christ. His body, he has earned it. It is his righteousness that covers us. And so when God makes a promise and we receive Christ, it's as if he is saying, am I not going to be faithful to my own son? And you belong to my son, and you are in my son. As we take the cup, and we drink again every week, this cup of wine signifying to us the precious blood of Jesus. It has washed us clean. It has set us apart. Not our good works or the good week that we had or what we've done or what we've given. The blood of Christ has stood in our place. And therefore our God's anger, our God's righteous wrath against our sin as his people has been appeased in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this table. And we thank you, Father, for what this table represents, the promise that it holds. And Father, we thank you that Jesus told us to do this often in remembering him, that we would need to be reminded of him all the time. Not just once a week, but all the time. And so, Father, we pray that you set these elements aside that we might know in our hearts that you will never, ever forsake your people whom you foreknow. That will not happen to the people of God. We thank you for this. We pray that we might know it in the depths of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.